some of you are like, okay, Ryan, you're a liar. Um, you said Gabe Hernandez was speaking today. Until about six o'clock last night, he was. But um, we talked on the phone, and homeboy is not doing well. So he's a, he's a big man with a big sickness. So I mean, I was even like holding the phone away from my ear so that I was like, no, <laughs> not going to happen. So this might be totally interesting today. Uh, started this about six o'clock last night. So uh, if you're just joining us, we're in a series in the letter of First Corinthians. It's a letter written by Paul to a group of uh, crazy followers of Jesus in the, in the town of Corinth. Last week, we talked about this Greco-Roman cultural thing called sophistry. And sophistry was this way of speaking eloquently, this way of speaking with, um, with a whole bunch of uh, rhetoric and um, beautiful words strung together, but a lot of times it didn't have a whole lot of meaning to it. Uh, you remember last week we talked, if you want to go back in the podcast, you can check this out, but these were traveling entertainers, sophists. They were our version of Hollywood filmmakers and actors and actresses. Uh, they would come into town. They would pack out a coliseum full of people. Um, they had disciples. Uh, sophists had traveling disciples, people that wanted to learn from them, learn how to talk like them, learn how to argue like them. Um, and everywhere they went, they had a following of people. And there was fierce competition amongst these sophists. Um, they would have, uh, they would, they would, they would be real competition to get uh, followers and business and finances and things like that. And if you were a follower of one of these sophists, um, your goal, your job was not just to promote this entertainer, but to actually ridicule all the other ones. Okay, and so that's why last week when we talked about Paul uh, saying, um, hey, you guys are gotten off track here. You guys have started getting culture into the community and you guys have started pitting uh, us teachers against each other. Some of you said, I follow Paul. Some of you say, I follow Apollos and still others of you, others. And, and so we talked about how uh, dangerous and divisive that is and how there was a lot of that had some race to it. There was, there was some different ethnic parts of that as well that were, that were pretty crazy and pretty ugly. And so what we think was going on with this church is they were really getting consumed by the culture around them, that they were trying to live this life following Jesus, but um, the culture was so strong and it had penetrated into the church uh, we left off in verse 17 of chapter 1, and it says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom, not with Sophia and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of, his power, of its power. And so what Paul does next, over the next four weeks, Paul, we're going to talk about this, Paul uh, compares and contrasts the wisdom of the world what culture says, what the basic uh, stories of the world tell us that to be true, with the foolishness of God, okay? And so he, he, he compares and contrasts what the world thinks, what the world calls wisdom, what, what the world says uh, it defines success as with what God says uh, is wisdom and success in life. And so, and the gap is really big, turns out. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about today, we're talking about the foolishness of the cross. Next week's the foolishness of the church, the gathering of the called out ones. 
Then the, and we're going to talk about the foolishness of preaching, of, of actual the announcement. And, and then we're going to talk about the foolishness of the Holy Spirit, like the spirit within us and how it's just foolish to people who don't understand. And that's actually going to be House Church Sunday. So if you're new to this place, um, we rent this place. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, we just let them put their name on the sign, right? You know, so, so we rent this place, and that weekend, for the first time in four years, got double booked. So after some arm wrestling and things like that, um, we're out of here. So we're actually, that Sunday, we're going to be in three different house churches. Um, there's one up north, one out west, and one uh, locally here. And so we would love it. If especially these would be those courageous things, even for people who call us their church to like show up at someone's house on a Sunday. So we're gonna do some courageous stuff, and this is gonna be a practice. This is how this church did it in Corinth. And so if you want some more information, we, we have that for you. But let's start in verse 18. Okay, it starts like this. Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And, it, and when you think about the culture, and we've done a lot of background the last four weeks, and so if you're new, I apologize, there's tons of background, but, but Paul walks into a city, a city with a huge amount of culture, a huge amount of economic boom. We talked about this place, they called it the Bridge of Greece. It had so much economics and so much spirituality, and it just is full of dripping with money and wealth and status, and, and it was totally different than Rome, and, and yet very similar. Uh, he preaches this. He walks in like a culture full of polished orators and, and all this culture, and he walks into it, and he preaches about an executed criminal from some wrong end of the empire some peasant who was killed, who was executed. He's not just the wrong end of the empire. He's from like some like backwoods part of the wrong end of the empire. And he was crucified on a trash heap outside of a very rebellious city in Roman culture. And Paul walks in and he talks about this Jesus who's crucified in a very barbaric way. You don't crucify Roman citizens. You crucify murderers, rebels, slaves, and peasants. And he walks into this culture of Corinth, this high, huge city of, of wealth and, and culture, and he preaches this message. And this man, it goes even first. It, it gets even crazier. It's, it's, it's a guy who was uh, claimed to be God incarnate, who was crucified, the literal king of the universe, a guy who called people together, called them a gathering, called them the church, and, and, this, and this guy will one day return to complete his work. And this is the message that Paul is preaching in Corinth. And that's foolishness. It's crazy talk. But he says, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, and he quotes Isaiah 29, 14. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Now that's not saying that, uh, that God is down on intelligence <laughs> at all. Um, what that's saying is that there's this wisdom, the wisdom of God sets itself over the, 
the arrogant, godless intellectualism of the day. And it seems foolish to that. And then in verse 20, it keeps going. It says, where's the wise person? And he, he kind of groups three different groups of people here. He says, where's the wise person, the, the sophist, okay? Where's the teacher of the law? And there's, he's kind of pointing things towards the, the Jewish crowd. He's like, where's the scribe, right? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of the age? And this would be more of a, a Greek thing, more of a debater. Where's, where's the debater? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And then verse 21, he goes on, he says, for since the wisdom, the Sophia of God, the world through its Sophia did not know him. See, to, God, to Paul, it was evident, it was super evident that humanity was unable to come to a knowledge of God outside of God's help. That all of our academics, all of our philosophy, all of our science and ingenuity doesn't get us to a place to know God. And this is coming from a guy, Paul, who was pretty academic. He was at the top of his class in rabbi studies. He's, he's from like this Roman background, Greek trained in Greek rhetoric. I mean, this guy was kind of like, the teacher's pet valedictorian of a few different streams of thought altogether. So he has a little bit of a leg to stand on on this one. He's basically, I mean, someone, someone once said that, that we are blind and deaf, groping in the dark, searching for God, and we need revelation. See, Scripture teaches there's two major forms of revelation. And hint, it's not Scripture. And, and, and I know that the Bible tells me so, whatever. <laughs> but like, Scripture talks about two main forms of revelation. The first one is Jesus himself. Jesus, the person of Jesus, showing up, God incarnate, here on earth. Jesus shows us who God is and what God is like. In Jesus, God steps into humanity. God incarnates himself fully human, fully divine. He speaks our language. He spoke the language of the people he walked amongst. Um, Jesus makes the invisible God visible. Jesus makes the far off God close and near and personal. Jesus makes the silent God audible. When you hear the words of Jesus, when, you, when they heard the words of Jesus, when we read the words of Jesus, that is what God is like. Jesus brings God near. Here is what I am like through Jesus, is what God's saying. And without Jesus, we'd be groping and searching for God in the dark. And in some ways, that's what kind of religion is. So when you take academics and science and all of these things, sociology, all these things, religion is humanity's it's our search for God, our quest for God, our, our desire to know God. And, and, and the gospel is God's, is, is the flip of that. The gospel is God's search for us. God's reckless search for us. In religion and science and philosophy and academics, they're all great. But they can't get us to know the living God. 
That's what Paul's getting at here. We need revelation. We need Jesus to know God. And the beauty of the gospel is, is it breaks down all of our arrogant pride about this. Like we just can't know God without Jesus's revelation, the revelation of God through Jesus. And then we know more about God through Jesus and the cross. It says here, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Is this idea that God actually wants to say it, like to rescue us through this kind of foolish idea. He's using the word foolishness. I'm not. This is, this is Paul's language. It's not propaganda here. He's not trying to one-up a sophist or, or to make it more appealing. It sounds crazy. And that's kind of why I think it's true. C.S. Lewis wrote this in one of his works. He said, the reality, in fact, is usually something uh, you could not have guessed. He's talking about this story of of the gospel. That is one of the reasons I believe in Christianity. It is a religion you could not have guessed. It's like you couldn't have made this up. You don't make up love your enemies. Like, you don't make up, it's blessed are the poor in spirit. You don't make up, the first will be last. You don't make up, carry your cross and follow me. You don't make that stuff up. Especially in a culture where Paul is. All those statements are so subversive and so countercultural. Like, you just, it would boggle the mind to make this up. Who makes up an executed Messiah? Who makes up a God coming down to us instead of all the other religions? Like every other religion in the world is this requiring humanity to move toward God through some sort of mysticism or step. Who makes up an account of God becoming a peasant child in some poor hick town who grows up to be an itinerant preacher and is executed in the most humiliating way? Who makes that up? Paul says it's foolishness. And yet thousands of years later, billions of people throughout history, um, and it's exploding throughout the world, even to this day, maybe not here in Denver, but to this day, it's exploding around the world. It's it's something so fascinating, so compelling, this story of of God uh, coming after us, uh, uh, like relentlessly pursuing us is so intoxicating. And in verse 22, it says this, Paul says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Okay, real quick, um, he's using two different polar, it's like a way of of doing an argument. He's using two different polar opposites here. Um, The Jews, the ethnic Jews demanding a sign and the Greeks demanding uh, wisdom. And and one of the things that's so interesting, like if you look back in all of Jesus's encounters with ethnic Jews in scripture, um, he's, they're always demanding a sign. And there's a particular part, we won't get into it, I don't have the time, but Matthew 16, where where they're, they're, they're demanding another sign, and he's like, you don't get it. I'm, if I keep giving you signs, you're going to just keep asking me for more signs. You, you people are exhausting, <laughs> And he basically points to one sign coming, um, his resurrection, um, that that's all they're going to need. But they keep asking for more. 
And then with the, uh, the Greeks who want wisdom, uh, the Greeks who, who love wisdom, they look for wisdom, it says, and they want a God who uh, makes sense, who plugs in all the holes, right? Who's pretty attractive, maybe, who, who helps them kind of get ahead in life, who's maybe pretty hip and sophisticated. Paul says in verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. Now, at first glance, that is not a big statement for us. I mean, we've heard it before. It doesn't jar us like it would them. It is a very scandalous, not polite, not sophisticated statement. A crucified Messiah is insane. It's crazy talk. It's an oxymoron. And we were looking up oxymorons last night. I had uh, sermon help from my family. Remember, I started at six. So I'm like, oxymorons, go. And then uh, jumbo shrimp and open secret, decaf coffee, (laughs) tight slacks, and country music. I know I'm going to get emails. You can have the cross, you can have a crucifixion, and you can have a Messiah. But a crucified Messiah? It's a stumbling block to Jews. That's what it says next. A stumbling block to Jews. The idea of Jesus being a stumbling block is all through Scripture. I mean, even starting in the Old Testament, from Psalm to Isaiah to Jeremiah, all the way to Acts, Peter. What did the Jewish people want? What do they want? They want a Messiah marked by power. They wanted a nationalistic, violent king to lead an army of Israelites to overthrow Rome. That's what they wanted. 45 AD, just before this letter was written, a man named Thutis came to the, claimed to be Messiah, and he led thousands of people outside of Jerusalem to the Jordan River, and he told them that he could part the Jordan River. And he couldn't. But he claimed to be Messiah. He probably died. 54 AD, like right around the time this letter was written, there was a guy who called himself the prophet, And he led people, he led about 30,000 people up to the Mount of Olives. And he claimed that he was gonna, by his power as Messiah, bring down the walls of Rome on the Romans. And he couldn't do it either. And then he died. And then in 132 AD, there was this infamous, I don't know if you guys have heard of uh, Bar Kokhba, he led hundreds of thousands of Jews against a, it was the last of the three great Jewish wars, um, and some people claimed he was Messiah, and he led hundreds of thousands of Jewish people in a war, in a revolution against the Romans. And this was like after the fall of, of Jerusalem in 70, and in, in the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, what happened was is that Rome started to rebuild a city on top of the ruins of Jerusalem, Okay? And uh, I have written down here, they called it 
Elia Capitolina, um, and it was in honor of the god Jupiter. And so the ethnic Jews at the time were so angry, and generation after generation, finally they rose up under Bar Kokhba, and, and they tried to overthrow Rome, and, and this, was the last, this was the last of it all. The Roman government just absolutely obliterated the Jewish people. Sent people into slavery. There was genocide like we have never seen ever in our country. The point being, they were looking for this. They were looking for some military strength, nationalistic identity behind their Messiah. They wanted Romans to die. They wanted rivers to part. The Jews were not looking for a pacifistic rabbi who told them to love their enemies and give their things away. And to top it all off, they weren't going to stand for that kind of a person who then was executed. Listen. Listen to, listen to Deuteronomy. This goes all the way back, okay? It says this in Deuteronomy. If someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a tree, you must not leave the body hanging on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. So not only, okay, is this person not doing what we want them to do as the Messiah, but they were crucified. And they're cursed by God. So not only was there no armies and no revolt in this, the guy said, love your enemies, but he died a rebel, slave, peasant, just like the murderers do. Because it was even illegal to, I already said this, but it was illegal to, to crucify a Roman citizen. It was a scandalous it's a trap. It's a snare. It's something that trips people up. This is a stumbling block. And to this day, Jesus is offensive. And, and I mean, here's the thing. I mean, you, you and I know that for many people, the gospel is offensive. And it's part of the reason why, um, I don't know, it's like that small percentage of preachers make it on TV, you know, and they're like, kind of all offensive, right? You know, it's like, ugh. it's like no wonder, right? But I mean, if you, if you, if you go a little further, we live in this hyper arrogant, intellectual, humanistic society. And, and I'm not bagging on, it's just like this, this idea, think about this, this idea that we're broken, that we are, that we are sinful, that we actually deserve God's judgment and we need to be rescued and saved is, it's offensive. It's really offensive to our culture. And then it goes on, uh, Paul goes on and says, and it's foolishness to Gentiles. It, and that, that word foolishness, he uses the word Moriah, which is actually where we get the word moron. And it's like, you guys are like, drink your own bathwater weird. I mean, that's how, you're just weird people. I don't understand you. How many of you have people in your life that think you're crazy for what you believe? You don't have to raise your hand, but like neighbors, friends, family, 
I mean, it's, it's nothing new at all. This is what Paul's getting at. It's kind of one of the reasons why I trust the gospel to be true. And then verse 24, it says this, but to those whom God has called. Remember, Paul is writing to followers of Jesus. He's reminding them that they're called. He already called, he told them early on to those who are called. And for some of you in here, you're like, well, I'm not a follower of Jesus. But you're here and you may have been invited by somebody. And uh, you may think that they're after you, like they're, they're relentlessly after you. Well, actually, that's God's after you. They're just participating in that. <laughs> they're just also after you. And this is God chasing you down. This is God capturing your heart again. This is God recklessly leaving everybody else and searching for you. So those who God has called, both Jews and Greeks, that means everybody, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, this idea of power, not this posturing power, not this empire-building, stepping on the necks of the broken power, a different kind of power, this wisdom, not, not style hip wisdom, but deep, groaning, thoughtful uh, of God-given wisdom. Uh, and then he goes on, he says, for the foolishness of God, uh, basically God on a bad day is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And, and basically this is God in the cross outthinks human wisdom. Here's what the true power and wisdom is. Here's the true story of the world, and it is upside down to the story that you have been living by. In an interview with uh, the Austrian philosopher named Ivan Illich, he was, he was in Latin America for a lot of his life, and he'd seen wars and turmoil and, and, and um, injustice and different regimes take over and all this different stuff. And he was a follower of Jesus. And, and at the end of his life, someone was interviewing him in an article. And they said, what is the best way to change society? What is the best way? Is it violent revolution or is it gradual reform? And Ivan said, neither. If you want to change society, you have to tell an alternative story. You have to tell an alternative story. The gospel is an alternative story. It's an alternative story to all the other stories in the world. And we all live by stories. Every single one of us lives by story. We live by stories. We try to make sense of the world around us by stories. We look at evil and injustice and suffering and disease and death and poverty. And, and we even look at beauty and love and creativity and genius, right? And, and design. And we try to make sense of the world around us with story. What is our soul? What is the meaning of life? What is purpose? What is longing? What is all this stuff? And we do, all of us do this by faith in stories, by allegiance to stories. Remember that word faith, and we talked about this a while back. It has this, this, this connection with the word allegiance. And we all live, and the question, the question is, do you believe in a story? The question is, which story do you believe in? 
Or which conglomeration of stories have you erected and created to, to kind of give your life the meaning that you want it to have? See, in Paul's day, there was the Jewish story. There was the Greek story. In our day, there's lots of stories. Pluralism, universalism tells a story. Secular humanism tells a story. Scientism, that there's only physicality in the world. That there's no supernatural. There's no meaning or purpose. Death is the end. Many people live by faith in that story. There's moralistic therapeutic deism, and you're like, what are you talking about? And this is where a huge percentage of Christians live. This idea that God wants me to be good, and if I am good, if I stay moral, if I follow biblical principle, sorry, (laughs) that God will be there when I need God to be there. That God will fix things in my life. But other than than those things where I need God, I treat God as if God is, as if I'm a deist, that that God really isn't that involved. And I can pretty much go about my life and do whatever I want unless I need him, and that's where the moral piece fits in. That the Bible is basically good advice. That God exists for me. That is a story. And a lot of people have faith in that story. Scripture tells us a story. That in the beginning, God created everything. And he created humanity to steward and to rule, to care for and to push creation forward. But we blew it. And we decided to that God was holding out on us and we decided to go our own way. And that ever since that point, God has been relentlessly trying to pursue and rescue us. First through Israel, first through a people and on and on and on. We are fractured in our relationships, not only with others, but with God and we're fractured in our relationship with ourselves. And God wants to bring all of that back and make that all right again. And it sounds like foolishness because that story subverts all the other stories. It subverts the story of materialism. It subverts the story of pluralism. It subverts the story of humanism that you are only physicality. And on and on and on. And and it's the true story, the true narrative about what God and the world is all about. And the cross is at the center of it. Everything revolves around it. And there is power and wisdom found in a crucified Messiah. Let me ask you some things. In a world where God was crucified, What does that say about violence? What does that have to say about violence? In a world that God was crucified, in a world where God was poor, what what does that say about money? In a world where God was tortured, what does that say about love? 
In a world where God rose from the dead, what does that say about life to come? See, the gospel confronts us. Like, it says that you and I have bought into an alternative story than the gospel. It says that you and I have put together stories that we want. Remember, who's Paul talking to? He's talking to followers of Jesus. He's talking to this, this, this little church, meeting in house churches, coming together uh, regularly for kind of a bigger gathering. And, and they're enamored with the culture around them. And yet they, they know about Jesus and they want what Jesus has, but they're enamored with this culture around them. And they, they want logical and rational things that make sense. And they have all these different stories that they're bringing in. And I think that, that that's much like us. Like, if I was to ask you to reflect, which are, what are the stories that you live by? What are the stories you've told yourself that are true? Today, when you watch the Super Bowl, the commercials are going to tell you a story. The ads are going to tell you the story. The, the, everything that's happening that day, the entertainment is going to tell you a story. And it's subtle. And you're going you're gonna to feel it. You're going to respond to it. Trust me, they've done research telling you these stories. This is us. It's going to tell you a story about what is true. What are the stories that you believe? What are the stories that you give allegiance to? What is the story? the foolish story that can transform your life. It's a crucified Messiah. Now today, as we wrap this up, we're gonna come to the table because the table tells a story. And my, my hope is, is my, my prayer is, is that you would have the ability to reflect honestly on where your allegiance lies. And maybe what are the stories in your life that you've been living off of that, that have brought nothing but pain to you? And may you come to the table and participate in the true story.